thoughts, feelings? No? Did you like any of the poems? Was that a half nod? Uh huh. Okay. okay. I, because it starts out as like this power to the woman sort of poem, Christine, it's only in this one. <laughs> You'll have to look on the blues. Yeah, and then it takes a different turn. And then, sorry? It, and then it takes a different turn. Yeah. Um, what is the different turn? Um, when it comes to feelings. Or she offers something that men need. Um, it's probably a little bit, um, it's structured in a, in a somewhat tricky way. Um, but, but that's kind of the punchline of the poem. Um, had any of you heard of any of them before? So they were incredibly famous in their day. Um, and are becoming famous again, or have, have uh, had a kind of resurgence in the last 20 years, partly because of a rediscovery by feminist critics of, um, of women poets um, from the 19th century and the 18th century. They're probably important um, to the very fact of the rise of important poetry by women in the 19th century. That is, you'd be hard put to find any um, memorable or fame, memorable poems or famous, <coughs> famous poets who are female. There are a couple of exceptions, but really, really very few exceptions um, before the end of the 18th century, before the second half of the 18th century. Um, we looked at one before, um, and there are a couple of people in the Renaissance period, um, and the same age as Shakespeare, uh, Sir Philip Sidney's, um, that age, Sir Philip Sidney's sister. But poetry was, although women wrote poetry, um, they wrote poetry not with the kind of, in general, not with the kind of ambition um, to be great poets that the great male poets that we've read um, that one studies in as an English major um, wrote from the get-go. Um, but towards the end of the 18th century, um, for reasons of societal and economic and publishing change, partly because publishing was how you started um, in the 18th century, one of the things that we haven't really talked much about in this class. But um, Dryden was made a living as a poet. Rochester didn't publish his poems. Um, Rochester's poems were um, circulated in manuscript. Um, the way Rochester got into trouble with Charles II, remember, was Charles asked for a poem of his, and he reached into his pocket and pulled out the wrong poem. Um, the poem talking about how his prick and his scepter were of a length, um, and gave that one to Charles. Um, 
but but poetry had been an aristocratic medium, um, and there wasn't that much writing of poetry for publication in order to make a living. That is, not that much writing of, writing of poetry for publication by people who made a living by writing for print. Um, that kind of starts changing at the end of the 17th century. So Dryden printed his works and um, made a living um, selling books. Pope made a living selling books. Um, selling his poems in printed form. Um, you probably made a better living on the whole writing in prose than in poetry. Um, but people did make livings as writers, and including poets, including really important poets. The um, result of this was that poetry now became something that um, women could also make a living doing. And... Um, not only could they make a living doing it, but it was one of the few things that intellectual women could make a living doing. Um, Barbeau, who's one of the people we read for today, um, was both a teacher and actually an extremely important teacher and, um, and a theorist of pedagogy. She, um, she opened um, a school which had students come, um, an elementary school that had students come from all over the world, really, all over the English-speaking world. She and her husband um, taught the students there, and she thought a lot about teaching um, children and thought a lot about um, the kinds of things that um, they could learn and thought a lot about the experience of childhood for that reason. And a lot of her pedagogical theories were... Um, um, absorbed into 19th century pedagogical theories. 19th century is when kindergarten was invented. Um, and I don't, actually I seem to recall, but now I can't say this for sure, um, that, that the guy, the German guy, or Austrian guy who invented kindergarten um, actually had known about Barbeau and had read her work. Um, I'm, not, I, I'm not certain of this memory of mine, but I seem to remember having read that once. Um, and she wrote poems for children. Um, that is that as a teacher, one of the things she did was um, she was a kind of proto-Dr. Seuss, um, writing poems that children would find interesting and that they did find interesting for a century. Um, her poems for children were being used in schoolrooms up through um, the end of the 19th century. And um, those poems for children, writing for children, um, writing for real children, as Barbeau did, was um, meant that she had to understand what real children were interested in, what um, the experience of childhood was like for real children. Um, so if you think of Gray um, writing about the experience of, the children, of what it was like to be a child at, at Eton College and then looking at the children there, Barbeau is also looking at children in the schoolroom, um, but she's looking from much closer up. Um, doesn't mean that she's that th this isn't this doesn't imply any any evaluative comparison between them, um, but it's the it's the parallel that um, matters there. That is that she's um, like Gray. She's thinking about um, an experience which she takes very seriously, um, and which she knows is transitory and ephemeral and important. Um, the experience of childhood. All of this is um, stuff that the romantics are going to take up 
um, a generation later um, and take up very strongly a generation later. Um, in France, at the same time, Rousseau is writing Emile, which is his great um, sort of didactic novel about education, um, about the best way to educate a child, which is not to make them memorize stuff. Um, and Emile was also extraordinarily important in the history of educational theory and educational practice. Um, but all of that comes out of a sort of 18th century um, interest in the experience of children as real children, um, an experience that there are two ways that you can get at. One is through memory, and one is through observation. That, and um, that's the kind of thing we saw in Gray. That's the kind of thing you can see, not so much in these poems, although a little bit in the second one, the poem to um, Coleridge, um, but that you can see in Barbeau on the whole. And um, she was a passionate reformer in general. She also wrote um, a really powerful uh, attack on, on the slave trade. Um, she was an abolitionist in England. As you know, slavery was outlawed in England well before in the US. Um, but she was one of the people who pushed really hard against slavery. And um, she, was, she was progressive on most things. Um, and she did make a living as a writer and um, as a writer and as a teacher. Um, Bailey, whom we're also reading, whom we also read for today, um, also made a living as a writer. She was, um, but neither of them in any way were engaged in hack work. That is to say, they didn't make livings as writers because they could um, just write page turners that people would buy. They were serious writers who were good enough that um, serious readers were interested in what they were doing. Um, Bailey published anonymously at first, and her um, big project was, um, uh, which she essentially completed, was to write a series of plays on the passions, as she called them. Um, she called them a series of plays on the passions. That is, she wanted to write um, a whole set of plays about um, human emotions, the kind of emotions that um, can um, override all others. That is, if you're in a pretty, in a normal and well-balanced state, you'll sometimes feel fear, you'll sometimes feel pity, you'll sometimes feel love, you'll sometimes feel distress, and so on. Um, but sometimes when things get really bad or really passionate or really intense, um, there's one passion that overrides the others. And so she wrote a series of plays, um, paired plays on each of the passions, tragedy and comedy. A tragic play about a passion and then a comic play about a passion. Um, these plays were performed by um, the leading actors of the day. They didn't do very well on stage, um, but they did, do very, they did do very well as printed books. They were both performed and sold as printed books. And um, she decided to do this when she was um, in her 20s, and she published the last of her series of plays on the passions, um, I guess when she was around 70. Um, she lived to 90, and um, she was born before Coleridge. She outlived Coleridge. Um, her sister, who was a year older than she was, was born before Wordsworth and outlived Wordsworth. Um, her sister lived to be 100, 101, 101. 
Um, her brother was Matthew Bailey, um, who was a scientist very interested in psychology and who had studied with Joseph Bell, who's the guy that Bell's palsy is named after, um, and who was... Sorry? The inspiration for Sherlock Holmes. One of the inspirations for Sherlock Holmes. Have you seen Sherlock, by the way? Did you watch it? Yeah, I thought it was pretty great. Doctor Who fans? Um, yes. Today is the 47th anniversary of the first episode of Doctor Who. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Um, <laughs> Moving swiftly onward. Doctor Who is not, by the way, a good place to get your literary history from. Um, Doctor Who has Shelley meeting Dr. Johnson. Um, <laughs> But unfortunately, Dr. Johnson died eight years before Shelley was born. Um, still, it's a good episode. Um, not, not accurate or reliable, but maybe as accurate and reliable as I am. Who knows? Um, at any rate, um, some of you suppress a smile. Um, um, Bell was one of the first people to um, uh, think about how nerve impulses worked. Um, what the relationship between, um, well, what he was very interested in, I mean, the, you'll see the relevance of this in a second. Um, Bell was very interested in um, the way emotions were expressed in bodily um, terms. That is, why when you feel happy do you smile or laugh? Um, why when you're impatient do you shake your foot? Um, why when you're frightened do you get goosebumps? Um, and he um, essentially was one of the earliest people um, to um, have a theory of the nerves that affect the body coming down from the brain. Um, he realized that they did that, um, that, that somehow the brain controlled the body and that things that were going on in the brain, various emotional things, would produce impulses that would go down the nerves and affect the body in various ways. So he was really, really interested in the relationship of the expression of emotion um, to the, that is the physical expression of emotion in the body, to the emotion that was being felt in the brain. Um, and he lectured about this. He actually lectured originally to art students. Um, and um, what he was trying to do is he was lecturing to them as a scientist and as a medical doctor on um, what kinds of muscles were involved in what kinds of facial expressions. Um, and it was a sort of uh, late 18th century version of earlier art student um, uh, study of anatomy. Um, that is, the, um, the reason Leonardo studied, or one reason Leonardo studied anatomy was to get his depictions of the human figure right. Um, Pre-Leonardo, you can see lots of muscular figures, but they're, they're muscular with muscles that don't exist. Um, and no person could even theoretically look like um, some of the so-called realistic figures pre-Leonardo. Um, Post-Leonardo, art students studied anatomy. Um, and um, Bell thought that they should also study the essentially the anatomy of human expression. Um, and that's, that's um, what he was thinking of. Um, Bailey... Um's brother, um, Matthew, may have gone to those lectures. He certainly knew Bell um, and studied with him. Um, and no doubt Joanna Bailey had heard 
um, at the very least, as an extraordinarily intellectual person. Um, she had heard and discussed these issues with her brother and his friends and her friends. Um, and her idea, which she'd already undertaken of a series of plays on the passions, um, had to do with just thinking about um, the expression and observation of human emotion. So some of you may know the preface to Wordsworth's Lyrical Ballads, um, which we are reading or supposedly reading for the last day of class. Um, and in the preface, is this something that people know about at all? Do you know? Well, we talked about lyrical ballads earlier a little bit in this class a week or so ago, um, which is the revolutionary book of poems that Wordsworth and Coleridge put out in 1798 and was kind of more or less the invention of modern poetry. So in 1800, Wordsworth wrote a preface. And in the preface, um, what he says is that um, he gives some, some uh, very important definitions of the kind of poetry that he was trying to write and the kind of poetry that is essentially what modern poetry is. Um, among those important definitions are that he is trying to um, write in the natural language of natural men. That's one famous quotation from the preface to Lyrical Ballads, the natural language of natural men. Heightened, it's true, but heightened in a way that expresses the emotion that they're undergoing. Um, so his idea is that language is heightened under emotional circumstances, um, that when things are emotionally intense, um, there's a corresponding, um, gr correspondingly greater intensity in language. And for Wordsworth, poetry was um, a way of formalizing this greater intensity in language, of showing natural language heightened the way emotion heightens natural language. And he also um, famously described what he was trying to do as emotion recollected in tranquility. That's another very famous phrase from the preface to Lyrical Ballads, that it's not just the expression, or it's not, you don't, he doesn't write. One shouldn't write out of a direct um, and immediate experience of emotion, but afterwards, when emotion is recollected in tranquility. But he also describes um, poetry, and this is a very famous description, as the spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling. The spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling. And the spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling um, means that when you write, as he did, poems about common people who are... Um, <coughs> excuse me, experiencing the emotions that are very basic to human life. Um, everyday emotion, but for that reason, um, serious, much more serious than the emotions that you'll find in highly artificial situations that some drama will give you. <coughs> serious emotions that have to do with um, anxiety and fear and love and despair in everyday life, um, that um, you can see this all around you. And um, it does overflow. <coughs> Excuse me, powerful feeling is everywhere. It does overflow spontaneously. 
and you can get a sense of emotion and a, and a delineation, a picture of different kinds of emotion um, by looking at the um, um, way people in emotional circumstances might be thought to speak. And that's the kind of poetry that Wordsworth is trying to write, is um, poetry that sounds um, like what people under, <coughs> excuse me, under those conditions would say. He has some warrant in this because of, because as I said before, because of the ballads, the ballad tradition that was just then um, being um, codified and collected. So I think it's actually in here um, that uh, I think there's one of Bishop Percy's ballads in here. Um, but per, yeah, so if you look at poem 347, I think. Um, I could be wrong, but I think it's poem 347. I mean, I think that's the right Thomas Percy. Um, which would be page, yeah. Um, no, yes. Um, which would be on page 537. And there's a little note. This is the Friar of Orders Gray. And Percy has a little note about this. Um, Dispersed through Shakespeare's plays are innumerable little fragments of ancient ballads, the entire copies of which could not be recovered. Many of these being of the most beautiful and pathetic simplicity, the editor was tempted to select some of them and with a few supplemental stanzas to connect them together and form them into a little tale which is here submitted to the reader's candor. One small fragment was taken <coughs> from Beaumont and Fletcher. So that, in, that, this poem is in this book because what Percy did was um, he kind of did a mosaic of little bits of ballad in this poem um, in order to produce a single story. Um, but what he mainly did was he collected ballads um, and, collect, and he went around the borders of England and Scotland where there was a huge ball, um, tradition of balladry of minstrelsy um, and collected those ballads and published them in three volumes and they're called Relics of um, Ancient English Verse or in, Ancient English and Scottish Verse. Um, and those ballads, anonymous and oral and um, known by everyone but not written down by anyone, for Wordsworth are going to be um, obvious examples of um, the natural language of natural men. This isn't poetry written down in some sophisticated, by some sophisticated, um, well-educated person like Gray, who's learned a lot of Greek and Latin um, and is thinking about writing poems that sound like ballads. These are actually ballads. These are actually um, the poetry that people are um, down the generations composing by themselves, producing by themselves, remembering by themselves. It's another tradition and not a tradition which is learned, but a tradition which is natural, which is rural. Um, and Wordsworth, um, more than Bailey, but a little bit following her lead, wanted to write poems that would sound like ballads sort of like trying to write stories that sound like fairy tales. It's a really hard thing to do. Um, but that's what Wordsworth wanted to do in his poetry. Now, Bailey was in some ways um, more conventional than Wordsworth, um, considerably more conventional than Wordsworth. Um, she didn't think that what she could do is invent a whole new way of doing poetry. 
and she says so. Um, she says that um, what she's trying to do is delineate the passions, um, but she's not um, so foolhardy as to think that um, that all of literature before her has to be thrown out the window um, and that this is a completely brand new kind of literature. Wordsworth kind of does say that. He doesn't really say it, but he's um, much closer to saying it than she is. But in her plays, so she's from Scotland but living in London, um, and her, mother, her father died when she was pretty young. That's one reason that she had to make a living as a writer. Um, but in her plays, there are um, partly an imitation of Shakespeare. There are lots of ballads that she writes for those plays. Um, so that even though the plays are designed for the stage and they're about um, people that we would find a little bit stilted now, they would feel a little late 18th century to us, um, early 19th century to us. They're not um, plays that would really come alive unless extremely well acted for us now. Um, still, um, there are party scenes and ball scenes and dance scenes and song scenes and so on in the plays um, where people sing ballads. And um, this is something that Walter Scott will also do a little bit. He's a little bit younger than she is. Um, but some of Scott's best short poems um, are poems that are sung by characters in his novels, um, ballads that they remember but which he has made up. But Bailey is doing that before Scott. Um, so what you get are um, ballads within, um, which are which are um, come from elsewhere, even within the literary work that quotes them. Um, that stands for um, a kind of elsewhereness in the work. And um, some of Bailey's ballads, mostly um, stuff that she wrote in the 19th century, so it's not in this book, but they're still worth reading. Um, but some of her ballads are really, really, really good um, and, and worth reading um, as ballads, as standalones, even though they come out of the plays. Um, what's in this book is actually um, from her first book of poems, which she wrote in 1790 and which was then lost. No one had seen a copy of it until the 1980s. And in fact, this, the Lonsdale edition, this edition, I believe is the first published, um, the first publication of those poems um, for 170 years or so. Um, and now that now the book itself has been issued in the 90s in facsimile. Um, but so so those earliest poems by her um, that survived, I think there are a couple of early ones that survived, but the first book of hers that survives, um, the poems in this book are drawn from, and it was only recently rediscovered. But at any rate, Bailey thought about the relation of um, literature to the expression of human emotion in about the same time and in ways very similar to the way Wordsworth did. Um, she was um, she was eight years older than Wordsworth, um, and she anticipated him a little bit on this. Um, and Wordsworth um, admired her. He clearly read her, liked her plays, liked her poetry, and admired her. Um, and again, you can see, as we saw in Gray and um, in Thompson and in Collins, you can see um, something that's getting very, very close to Romanticism itself. 
Um, Barbeau was um, uh, interestingly interested in Coleridge. Um, Coleridge was about, what, 30 years younger than she was. Um, but he had become extremely famous extremely young um, as a poet and writer and thinker and um, a brilliant um, polemicist, and um, she got very interested in him. Um, and he went to meet her. He wanted to meet her. He liked her poetry. Um, and he called upon her. Uh, Wordsworth did as well. Um, I think that was later, though, that they went back um, to meet her. And then she wrote the poem. Uh, we could actually start with that one. Um, but she wrote the poem um, to STC. It's poem 538. Um, oh, to Mr. S.T. Coleridge. No, to, sorry, to Mr. C. <laughs> to Mr. C. Blank G. That's what it is. Um, sorry, I'm having trouble with those um, brackets. Um, and um, it's a pretty interesting poem to write to a 25-year-old young man. Um, interesting because it turns out she really got him right. Uh, she got right both what he was so good at and also what his future temptations would be. Do people know about Coleridge? Is he a poet you've read at all? Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner? Um, are you nodding? Are you shaking your head or nodding? Shaking, shaking your head. <laughs> okay, so Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. So you know the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner? I know about it. I okay. It's like lots of creepy, slimy. I know, uh, I know about it mostly through Douglas Adams. Yes, <laughs> yeah. There are slimy things in it. Yeah. He says so. He calls them slimy, slimy worms. Yeah. yeah. Um, you read it? In high school. In high school. Did you like it? Um, you, I'm sure you know lines from it. It is an ancient mariner, and he stoppeth one of three. Is that not a familiar line? He stoppeth one of three. There used to be a riddle. How is a drunken shortstop like the ancient mariner? He stoppeth one of three. <laughs> okay. You get you, you tell your jokes where you find them. Um, <laughs> you like that one. <laughs> Have you read it? No, but we've had shortstops like that around here. Yes, we have. Yes. <laughs> How's Bill Buckner like the ancient era? Um, the ancient, and um, just like a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Um, the albatross, you know, an albatross around your neck? That's from the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Um, huh. You should take romanticism. You really should. It's like, I mean, we've been talking about the coming of Romanticism. Romanticism is the most important movement in poetry in the last 200 years. Um, it's the greatest poetry written in the last 200 years. Um, probably better than anything we've read in this class. Um, and that's saying a lot, I think, I hope. Um, so the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is... Um, there are three wedding guests who are going to a wedding, and suddenly they get stopped by this gray-bearded um, man, drawn and gaunt, and he tells his story to the wedding guest. The wedding guest doesn't want to hear it, but he says, no, you have to hear it. Um, and then he tells the story of um, going on, a, um, on an ocean voyage 
and um, all the terrible things that happened to them and all his shipmates die and death and death and life gamble for his soul. It's one of the great fantasy poems of all time. Um, and it's written in the form of a ballad. It is an ancient mariner, and he stoppeth one of three. By thy long gray beard and glittering eye, now wherefore stoppest thou me? The wedding guests are gathered in, and I am next of kin. Um, I won't get exactly right, but then, there was a ship, quoth he. Unhand me, unhand me, thou graybeard loon, but the mariner won't won't unhand him, but tells him the story. Um, and the story is a pretty amazing one. Um, and um, written in the form of a supernatural ballad. Um, Coleridge also wrote, a Coleridge is very interested in the ballads, as was Wordsworth. Um, and one of his poems begins uh, with a quotation from the Ballad of Sir Patrick Spence, which is one of the poems that um, uh, Percy collected. Um, uh, the quotation is, Last night I saw the old moon, no, last night I saw the new moon with the old moon in her arms, and I fear, I fear, my master dear, we shall have a deadly storm. Um, that's a version of Red Sky at Morning, Sailor Take Morning. Um, if the night is so clear that you can see the dark disk of the new moon, um, that means cold and wind. It's a, it's a sailor's sign. So that's the, ballad, um, that's the ballad stanza that Coleridge quotes. And then his poem, Dejection and Ode, begins, Well, if the bard were weather-wise that made the grand old ballad of Sir Patrick Spence, we're going to have a terrible storm tonight. Um, so he quotes the ballad, and then his poem begins as, as um, remembering the ballad and talking about it. Um, Coleridge also, I, I'm sure you know um, uh, Kublai Khan. I'm sure you, some of it's familiar to you. And in Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree where Alf the Sacred River ran through caverns. Are you nodding or shaking your head? Nodding. You're nodding at last. <laughs> where Alf the Sacred River ran through caverns, measureless to man, down to a sunless sea. Um, so those are like three of Coleridge's nine great poems. He, he, no one ever got to be so famous on the strength of so few poems, but the th few great poems, but the few great poems he wrote are just so great um, that he's a major poet. At any rate, he was also a writer, a philosopher, um, a plagiarist. He um, translated a lot of um, German philosophy into English um, over his own name, which he kind of had to do because he was in um, horrible drug-addled um, states of, um, of incompetence and, and inability to support himself. Um, he was a gigantic um, addict to opium. Um, and uh, he finally, he kicked opium and started writing a book about how he kicked opium, but the labor of writing the book was such that he started taking opium again in order to finish it. Um, and things did, things did not go well after that. Um, very close friend of Wordsworth's. And um, at the age of 25, as I say, he met Barbo, and then she wrote this poem, Midway the Hill of Science. Um, science there means 
not what we would call science, um, but it would mean general knowledge of the universe. It would mean it would mean deep the deepest um, inquiry into into the universe, into philosophy, into knowledge, into um, what what it all means. The Douglas Adam question: What it all means. Um, so. She's saying, there you are, midway the hill of science. After steep and rugged paths that tire the unpracticed feet, a grove extends. So halfway up the hill. Science in Latin, you'll remember, means knowledge, just to remind you of that. Um, so halfway up the hill, suddenly there's a lovely grove. Midway the hill of science, after steep and rugged paths that tire the unpracticed feet, a grove extends entangled mazes wrought and filled with strange enchantment. Dubious shapes flit through dim glades and lure the eager foot of youthful ardor to eternal chase. So halfway up there are all these spooky ghost-like things and, um, and uh, the youth, youth who are climbing the hill are um, lured to chase these ghosts these ghosts, these shapes, these, these um, dubious shapes that are flitting through the glades. Dreams hang on every leaf. Unearthly forms glide through the gloom, and mystic visions swim before the cheated sense. That is, you don't quite know what you're seeing. Athwart the mists, far into vacant space, huge shadows stretch and seem realities, while things of life, obvious to sight and touch, all glowing round, fade to the hue of shadows. So um, you would be amazed at how good this poem was if you knew about Coleridge, um, how prophetic this poem was if you knew about Coleridge. Um, this is exactly what his life and his thought and his poetry and his mental obsessions are going to feel like to him 10 or 15 years later. Um, but she's already cottoning on to this risk in him at the age of 25. No one else did. Um, she's, what, 55 or so at the time. Um, but no one else could see this coming. Um, but she did. She saw the kind of person that he was. Um, so real things become like shadows, faint to the hue of shadows, whereas um, the huge shadows themselves, they seem to be the realities Scruples here with filmy net, most like the autumnal webs of floating gossamer, arrest the foot of generous enterprise. So you might do something useful, but something gets in your way. Some, some scruple, some filmy net of second thought gets in your way. And palsy hope <coughs> and fair ambition with the chilling touch of sickly hesitation and blank fear. Um, that word blank is really good. Um, blank fear. Uh, why blank? It's almost as though fear that you don't know what, what it is. It's a word Milton uses in a similar sort of way. Um, fear without an object. Um, it's a word that Wordsworth will pick up um, in the intimations of when he will talk about blank misgiving of a creature moving about in worlds not realized. Um, that's seven years later, he writes that in the intimations of. Um, you remember that, Matt? The, that part of it? 
Um, blank fear, sickly hesitation and blank fear. Nor seldom indolence these lawns among fixes her turf-built seat. So you get halfway up the mountain and you just stop. You become indolent, unable to go farther. Um, she's thinking, um, as you would recognize if you, as you, you will recognize if you know it, um, she's thinking of Dante's Purgatorio. Um, that is what happens in Purgatorio is that Dante and Virgil, the older and the younger poet, are climbing the mountain of Purgatory. It's a real mountain in Dante. It's in the southern hemisphere where no Italian had ever been, um, so he could make up the geography. And in the geography, you climb the mountain of Purgatory. It's at the antipodes of Jerusalem. It's directly across the world from Jerusalem in the southern hemisphere. You climb up the mountain of Purgatory, and um, there are those who are climbing it who then just become slothful, um, who are too indolent to go any farther, um, to try to get to heaven, to paradise. Um, that's the risk that she sees Coleridge running. Nor seldom indolence these lawns among fixes her turf-built seat. Remember the Thompson poem about indolence? Castle. The Castle of Indolence, yeah, which we read some of the first canto. Um, so indolence is a very interesting um, threat and risk to the poet. If you think about it, it's going to, Keats is going to write an ode on indolence, um, and indolence is going to be a really interesting topic for poetry in the 19th century. Um, and it's partly that the idea is that poetry requires a lot of work, but what you're working on is a kind of vision, um, a kind of reality which is not real, um, which is itself um, an atmosphere rather than a purposive thing. Um, not true of political poetry, not true of a whole lot of the poetry we read in the first part of this course, but when poetry, in a sense, becomes about poetry rather than about um, the, who, the, who the Whig leaders are and who the Tory leaders are, when it becomes about poetry itself, um, you have to get yourself into a mood where you're thinking about this world, and yet you're also supposed to work really hard trying to write the poem. And those two things are almost incompatible with each other, or they risk feeling incompatible with each other. Um, so poets start thinking about indolence itself as the experience of being a poet. Um, and again, she's seeing that. I think Coleridge's life, in a lot of ways, is, is a confirmation of that incompatibility. Um, but she's seeing that as a threat as well, nor seldom indolence these lawns among fixes her turf-built seat and wears the garb of deep philosophy. So, you know, it's stoned conversation. You think you're getting somewhere in your thought. Um, it looks like deep philosophy, but it's just indolence. Um, and stoned conversation was what Coleridge was all about for 15 years or so. Um, nor seldom indolence these lawns among fixes her turf-built seat. And where's the garb of deep philosophy? <coughs> and museful sits in dreamy twilight of the vacant mind. So think how different that is from eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. So that's, that's the trajectory of this course, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind to the dreamy twilight of the vacant mind.
soothed by the whispering shade, for soothing soft the shades and vistas lengthening into air with moonbeam rainbows tinted. Here, that is halfway up the hill of silence where you know enough to just want to brood and, and, and think. Here, each mind a finer mold, acute and delicate in its high progress to eternal truth, rests for a space in fairy bowers entranced and loves the softened light and tender gloom and, pampered with most unsubstantial food, looks down indignant on the grosser world and matter's cumbrous shapings. So you get halfway up over the world of matter, of busy everyday cares and um, necessities and interests, and, and um, here the finer youths look down with a kind of contempt at what they think of themselves as having transcended. Youth, the loved of science, of the muse beloved, not here, not in the maze of metaphysic lore build thou thy place of resting. Don't stop here. Don't just stay in this place where you don't actually know, but where it's just so attractive to let your mind wander and to think that your wandering mind is philosophizing. Don't do it, youth beloved of science. That is, she's calling Coleridge the youth that science itself would love, that the muse would take under her wing. Don't stop here, not here, not in the maze of metaphysic lore, build thou thy place of resting. Lightly tread the dangerous ground on noble aims intent, and be this Circe of the studious cell enjoyed but still subservient. Who's Circe? Who? <clears throat> Sorry, say it again. From the, From the Odyssey, yes. Do you know who? Do you remember who? She turns his men into pigs. Yes, she turns his men into pigs. Um, she's one of the um, temptations to Odysseus and his men. Um, she actually gives them um, a drink, which uh, will later be called Nepenthe, though it isn't in the Odyssey. Um, and it's a kind of narcotic drink um, that then turns them into pigs, but they don't know it. They're happy with their lot. Um, and eventually Odysseus is um, able to defeat Circe, and then she has to let him go, although she becomes friends with him before she lets him go. So um, enjoy this Circe where you are. Enjoy drinking the Kool-Aid of metaphysics and philosophy, the Nepenthe of metaphysics and philosophy, but let it be subservient to you. You have other places to go. Active scenes shall soon with healthful spirit brace thy mind, and fair exertion for bright fame sustained, for friends, for country, chase each spleen-fed fog that blots the wide creation. Now heaven conduct thee with a parent's love. Um, kind of blessing at the end of it. So you have to think, again, remember that she knows young people. Um, and there's a curious way, you could almost say, that Coleridge at 25 is utterly brilliant and learned and accomplished, but at the expense of um, a kind of maturity, um, so that he would strike her 
as very young for a 25-year-old um, when she's 55, as uh, being childlike in so many ways, and she knew children. Um, so <clears throat> what's interesting here is that you can see, I think, um, a transition and also a resistance to transition from a pre- or even proto-romantic view of the task of poetry, of the vocation of the poet, of what poetry is for, of what life is for, what thinking is for. Um, you can start seeing a transition here from, um, from Barbo, who can see where romanticism might be going towards poetry which isn't about the real world, towards poetry which in a sense um, uh, just just um, rebuffs the real world, um, enters rather into the mind instead of um, interacting with the real world. If um, so, just be honest now. The, those of you who I, I it, it's it's my guess that a lot of you took this course because it's a pre eighteen hundred course, um, and you need them to graduate if you're an English major, um, and very few people like Dryden or Pope the first time they read them. Um, did you? One reason we kind of started with Rochester was I think he's a little easier to like because he's so um, outrageous. Um, but did you all like Dryden and Pope the first time you, re you read them? You did, good. When, is this the first time? Dryden. You liked Dryden yeah. more than Pope? Yeah. Okay. Um, you said so in your paper too, didn't you? Maybe, okay, I think someone did. Um, and but this was the first time you read either of them. Okay, and other people? I really did not like Dryden. You didn't. But what I did like Pope. Yeah, but in a way, you you might have been um, you might have been acclimated to the heroic couplet by then. Um, yeah. What about you? Same. I didn't like Dryden, but I liked Pope. Okay, um, and have you found yourself getting to like them more? Did you find yourself getting to like them more over the course of the course? No, not at all? You did? Well, I mean, this isn't the first time that I've read either of them, but last time I read them, I didn't really like them at all. Okay, good. Um, but no one else, huh? Ah, oh, 18th century poetry class fail. Um, I found that, like, the poets that weren't as famous I liked more. Like, I really liked Gray and Young. Uh-huh. Um, huh. Uh, all right, yeah, what, how about other people? So, I really liked Gray as well. You really liked Gray as well. Okay. And no one else liked anyone? <laughs> I was a big fan of Swift. Okay, yeah. What do other people think of Swift? Yeah, I think Swift was different. I mean, I really liked reading it too because it was, I mean, it was enjoyable to read, but it was also disgusting at points, <laughs> but at least it was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, I guess like, I was thinking about this before, between Pope, Dryden, and Swift, kind of like, Swift seemed like he was writing most from the heart, I guess, or like, not because of ambition, but just because he was really screwed up, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and he's also probably got, um, as a misanthrope, um, which he was, um, he basically um, thought that almost anything that was not um, pretty devastatingly 
truthful about what human experience was really like was just hypocrisy. Um, that, you know, um, being a human being is kind of, it's a disgusting thing to be um, if you just think about what you have to do every day. Um, and so Swift in no way is disguising um, himself. He's, he's a sort of, brutally honest would be the wrong term because it means something so different now. It's, you know, a brutally honest depiction of life in the ghetto. Um, but for Swift, it's like there's ne he, he never gussies up any way that he's feeling or um, anything that he wants to say. Um, and there's something really refreshing about, um, almost Comedy Central refreshing, about um, the way he just describes things the way they really are. Um, that's pretty rare. So, and then he does it with, with such verve, and he's so funny about it. Um, that, and, and there's nothing um, boastful about Swift, um, which I, th I think is a neat thing about him. He hates other people's hypocrisy, but part of that means that he thinks hypocrisy and boasting are two names for the same thing. And so the one thing he'll never do is boast. Um, and if you never boast, you're not going to be saying lots of nice things about yourself. Um, so yeah, okay, so Swift is good. Yeah. Um, I didn't really like the political poems, um, just because, and especially in the 18th century, you have to kind of understand the whole realm of something that seems so distant from today. Uh-huh, yeah. I felt that way with all that was dried in. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, it's true, and it's basically... In order to like them, you have to um, recognize, and in a way that's what, what the poems aim to make you do, is recognize that it's easy enough to do substitutions that make them relevant to any time and any place. Um, that is, that the, that the human dynamics are the same. But if you find yourself reading lots of footnotes and trying to figure out, you know, the Dunciad might be the hardest version of this, trying to figure out who's who and um, what exactly about them Swift or Pope hated, I mean, or Dryden or Pope hated. Um, yeah, it can get confusing really fast. Um, but on the other hand, invective is invective, and um, it's, it's always good to imagine putting it to use yourself. Yeah, I feel like if I spent more time, like if I really it's the type of one you can really get into and spend a lot of time on it, you really can get something out of it. Too. Yeah. Yeah, okay, good. George? Oh, I like Dryden for his involvement in the politics of the day and his attempt to influence people uh, through his poetry. Uh-huh. Something we could use a little more of today. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I just imagine Obama quoting poetry and that would really go over well with the people who think he's elitist. <laughs> Um, lots of comments in the in the actually I think it's only in the Times, but if you read news stories in the Times and you get the you know the ridiculous comments afterwards, um, lots of people try to write comments in limericks, um, so somehow they want poetry to be effective. Um, I think they tend not to be very good limericks, but there you go. Um, okay, anyone did anyone like um, Smart? Sort of. I like stories. I don't remember what precisely I like. <laughs> but, but I do like. Well, doesn't everyone love? For I will consider my cat Jeffrey. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
Um, Cooper, who we did last time, the castaway. No. Oh, sorry. <laughs> All right, so I'll pretend we didn't have this depressing conversation. Um, and um, note again, though, that, um, well, it, it really is the case that people in the 21st century, people in the late 20th century, just don't like most 18th century poetry the first time, which it was for most but not all of you, they read it. Um, and Danielle, you were, you were saying this is the second time you're reading? Yeah, so um, whereas if it were the second time, if, if you were to take this course again, if you were to take the second semester version of this course, you would like it. You can trust Danielle. Um, no, but it, it, it does take a while. Whereas romantic poetry is, if you like poetry um, in the 21st century, in the 20th century, that's the kind of poetry you'll like. Um, that's the kind of poetry you will like um, as, soon as, you, as soon as you get it. Um, it's romantic, the romantics kind of um, invented the idea that we now have about what poetry is for. Um, and it's a, quite a different idea from the 18th century idea. Yeah? That's actually why I liked Pope, because um, especially in Eloise de Abelard, like, it's in couplets, but it doesn't feel like it's in yeah. couplets, and it yeah. felt a lot like it was before its time. Yeah. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, part of what's so striking about this is, is um, how much there is before Romanticism that is actually thinking about poetry the same way. I think it's actually an important thing to know, because people who don't like the Romantics, I don't mean students, I mean scholars, um, professors who are against Romanticism, are against it because they think, oh, they just invented this way of thinking about poetry which was politically... Um, inactive and um, and withdrew from any engagement with um, the pol political action that everyone should be um, should be devoting themselves to, and that was what was bad about Romanticism, um, and it still affects us today. And um, it's partly useful to see that Romanticism is um, not as as original in its view of poetry. Um, as those who are against it claim that it is. Um, it's not that they suddenly said, you know, poetry should have nothing to do with the real world. It should just be this other kind of cloud cuckoo land. Um, but that it turns out you can find um, poetry which is pre-romantic, which, which adumbrates romanticism among the most political poets, um, people like Pope. And that um, if Pope is thinking about poetry like this, um, it's because it has something to do with what poetry really is, not not just what the Romantics claimed poetry was. Um, nevertheless, you know, one of the things, just to, again, tell you what happens next, um, even though it's a little bit of a spoiler alert, um, Byron, who, at, who in the early 19th century was um, regarded as the greatest of the Romantic poets, um, now he isn't. Um, by no means is he regarded the greatest. Um, although his stock may be rising again. But in the early 19th century, he was regarded as, he, was, he had an international, you know, worldwide reputation as this Byronic character. Go figure. Um, Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights is kind of based on Byron. Um, Byron without the um, verve 
but to the extent that you find Heathcliff um, charismatic, it's a Byronic charisma. Um, the um, uh, Gerda talks about Byron in um, in Part Two of Faust. Um, so Byron is is um, uh, spectacularly um, successful, famous, um, widely read um, poet, as he himself said. He woke up one morning to find himself famous. He published a book of poems. Um, the next day, it, it got great reviews and sold out, and suddenly he was famous. Um, he'd grown up very poor, despite being a lord. Um, his father was uh, not good with money, um, and he became spectacularly rich on his poetry. Um, and Byron revered Dryden and Pope. I quoted this um, for you before, um, his poetical... Ten Commandments, um, thou, thou shalt worship Milton, Dryden, Pope, um, thou shalt set up no idols to Wordsworth, Southey, Coleridge. So Wordsworth, Southey, and Coleridge were for Byron um, the false gods, and um, Dryden and Pope and Milton were the true gods. Um, that's what he says in poetry. In reality, he was very helpful to Coleridge when Coleridge was um, in a haze of uh, opium-induced um, indolence. Um, he saved Coleridge several times from from financial disaster. Uh, he's twenty years young. No, twenty years younger. Sixteen years younger than Coleridge. Um, but then uh, Byron was the only one of the Romantics to really defend the early eighteenth-century poets, and Wordsworth despised Pope. Um, he wrote a actually a book-length um, book, hence book-length. Um, it's actually three essays called Essays on Epitaphs, where he talks about going, doing a kind of gray-like thing, looking at epitaphs in various country churchyards and um, talking about the ones he likes and the ones that he doesn't. And for him, the worst epitaphs in the world are those written by Pope. Um, he cannot stand Pope's epitaphs. Why? because they're two-liners, well-balanced, witty, and punchy. And for Wordsworth, that's exactly the wrong thing for an epitaph to be. Um, and uh, when Keats died, Byron wrote Shelley. His, um, they were best friends. Um, when Shelley died, Byron said, Shelley's the only man I ever knew who wasn't a brute and a fool. Um, but when Keats died, Byron wrote him saying, well, I'm really sorry that Keats died. Of course, I could never stand his opinions on Pope. Um, so Byron was pretty, pretty um, ferocious in his dislike of the other romantics, dislike of Pope and of Dryden. Um, but I say all this only to say that there really is, even though we've been sort of focusing, we've been lumping here a little bit, focusing on continuities um, between 18th century poetry and the coming of Romanticism, um, the there are also severe disagreements about the nature of poetry, and um, our contemporary view of poetry is more or less the Romantic view and not the 18th century view. Um, and you can feel it in this poem by um, Barba, that is, that um, you can see that what she wants Coleridge to be doing is devoting his life to um, social usefulness, including his writing to social usefulness. And what she's afraid of, this is her version of what Romanticism can do, what she's afraid of 
is that he's going to get lost in an unreal world of literature, which would include philosophy, but in an unreal world of um, art and literature and aesthetics and not do um, what he has the gifts to do, which is to do real things in the real world. Um, and uh, what she feels is an attraction to an imaginary world, um, which would be the world of literature. Um, and that's a sharp and insightful, if partial, thing to see about Romanticism. Um, it's also, she's able to see it um, because she herself does see that it's half a good thing, that it's halfway good, that it's halfway up the hill, that you do have to think these things through, that you do have to think really hard about um, the intensity of hu human imaginative possibilities. Um, and all she wants is to make sure that it's not, that the half isn't confused with the whole. Um, that Romanticism doesn't substitute for everything that you should do as a thinker and as a poet. Um, and what she's worrying about is, and it's a sharp thing to worry about, she's worrying that it will. Um, so here again you can start seeing um, her knowledge of human psychology, her knowledge of the kinds of experiences of nostalgia and memory of childhood. Wordsworth's Intimations Ode, um, which um, I think I've only taught one of the people here. Um, wait, were you in English 11, Liz? Mm -hmm. well, I was in, um, yeah, the one last semester. Yeah, with? It was with um, Tolstoy and yeah, yeah, yeah. That the yeah. that yeah that was um, Complet one hundred and eight. Oh. No, 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 I, no. But in English eleven, I used to teach, um, which used to be a required course in the major. Um, we did. Uh, some of us always did the Intimations Ode. So the Intimations Ode is is if there's one single essential short poem in um, English literature, it's that one. Um, short poem, not long poem. Short poem. Uh, the Intimations Ode is Wordsworth's most important single poem and the most important short poem in English literature. Um, and I say it without fear of contradiction, even though many people will contradict me. But the full title of the Intimations Ode is um, Intimations of Immor Ode, colon, Intimations of Immortality from Recollections of Early Childhood. And so the idea in that poem, we may do it the last day of class, but the idea in that poem is that um, if you remember and think really hard about the experience of early childhood and what is lost, how that experience is lost to you, um, that experience itself can give you an intimation of what it would be like to be immortal. To put, to put it in very, very short terms, it's when you're a very young child, um, there's a sense in which you are immortal, in which even though you know you'll grow up and grow old and die, none of that means anything to you when you're four or five, not because you're ignorant, but because your command of time is so total, because um, 
if you're going to die in 70 or 80 years, um, that's an infinite amount of time to a person who's four or five years old. That's simply, there's no change that such a person experiences. Time doesn't seem to be passing at that age. And the experience of the world as a world which is fully present to you, not a world which is evanescent, which is what happens later as the world seems more and more an evanescent thing, but a world which is fully present to you. Wordsworth is remembering what it was like to experience the world that way. Um, and he calls that an intimation of what immortality must be like. Not that he necessarily believes in the immortality of the soul. He's agnostic on it. Um, but he does believe that we had an experience, all of us had an experience of the immortality of the soul in early childhood. So the poem begins with um, the famous lines, There was a time when every meadow, grove, and stream, the earth, and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial delight, the glory and the freshness of a dream. It is not now as it hath been of yore, for turn wheresoe'er I may by night or day, the things that I have seen I now can see no more. So the crucial words is there are, there was a time. Once, that's what things felt like. And now they no longer do. So for Wordsworth and for the Romantic poets in general, that sense of a lost past of absolute intensity and absolute presence, which you can return to in memory, but only as an absence. Only You can only return to as something lost. You can't think your way back into feeling that way. But you can remember that you once felt that way, and that's the best you can do, and that's what poetry will try to do. Um, for Wordsworth, that's what you get from being extremely attentive to childhood experience, and the important political or ethical um, uh, um, concomitant or consequence of that is that it's true of everyone. That is, that you're an adult in a world of adults, and they're all, you know, just, just um, as Jackson Brown says, after the legal tender. Um, but what you have to remember is that the intimation of immortality is something that everyone has felt, um, that the human soul is really, really, really deep, um, even if that depth is only measured by the darkness and distance that it goes to from where we are at present. Um, and so for Wordsworth and for the Romantics, they, they would deny flatly the uselessness that Barbo is worrying about in being in this region of, um, of intense besottedness with the depth of the human mind. Um, however, <coughs> where they're similar is that Barbo sees the importance and concedes the fact of that depth. Um, okay, let's just spend a minute on, or five minutes, on um, one of the Bailey poems. Uh, 
go to page um, Let's go look at a child to a sick grandfather. Um, so the name of this book is this is the book that was found um, in the '80s um, after people thought it was lost for um, over a century. Um, the name of the book is "Poems," wherein it is attempted to describe certain views of nature and of rustic manners. Um, so the point is that what she's doing, and this is again a little bit proto-wordsworthian, she's eight years older than he is, um, what she's doing is trying to say this is what people are like and they're worth writing poems about. So A Childhood Sick Grandfather's deceptively simple um, poem um, addressed by the child to his grandfather. Granddad, they say you're old and frail, your stocked legs begin to fail, your knobbed stick that was my horse can scarce support your bended course. How is his stick the child's horse? Hobby horse. Hobby horse, yeah. Um, the grandfather used to walk around hale and hearty but with a walking stick and sometimes the child would ride the stick, sometimes the child would take the stick and go running around the room, sometimes the grandfather would hold it and the child would, would climb up it, that sort of thing. Your knobbed stick that was my horse can scarce support your bended course while back to wall you lean so sad. I'm vexed to see you, Dad. Dad, short for granddad. You used to smile and stroke my head and tell me how good children did. But now I wot not how it be you take me seldom on your knee, yet nevertheless I'm right glad to sit beside you, Dad. So this is spoken by a child to his aging grandfather. Um, and what the child doesn't know, but what Bailey does know, is that both of them are moving through time. Not only the grandfather who's suddenly become old and sick and like to die, but what the poem is going to be about is how the child is growing um, older as well. How lank and thin your beard hangs down. Scanter the white hairs on your crown. How wan and hollow are your cheeks. Your brow is rough with crossing breaks, but yet... For all his strength is fled, I love my own old dad. Um, so the child now, notice, is um, going into the third person about the grandfather. And now he has to say, I love my own old dad. Not, And it's no longer vocative. It's no longer an address to him, although we're going to return to that. I'm vexed to see you, dad. I want to sit beside you, dad. I love my own old, not comma, dad, but I love my own old dad, whether he hears me say this or not. The housewives round their potions brew, that is medicine for him, or tea or soup, and gossips come to ask for you, so we're back to the second person, and for your wheel each neighbor cares, and good men kneel and say their prayers, and everybody looks so sad when you were ailing, dad. So now notice the child is like all the other adults who are worrying about the old man. You will not die and leave us then. So notice we go from the first person singular to plural. Leave us. The child is becoming like the others. Rouse up and be our dad again. When you are quiet and laid in bed, we'll doff our shoes and softly tread. And when you wake, will I be near to fill old dad his cheer? When through the house you shift your stand, I'll lead you kindly by the hand when dinner's set. 
Uh, with you bide and I be serving by your side, and when the weary fire burns blue, I'll sit and talk with you. So we're back to the first person. That's where he wants to be. But notice now we've ratcheted up. He's much more um, someone who takes care of the grandfather rather than is taken care of by him. And now look who becomes the storyteller. What happens in the last two stanzas, I'll just tell you, is that we can see what the old disposition of life was, the grandfather telling the child a story as the child falls asleep. But now it's the child who says, I have a tale both long and good about a partlet and her brood, and cunning greedy fox that stole by dead of midnight through a hole, which slyly to the hen roost led. You love a story, Dad. And then I have a wondrous tale of men all clad in coats of mail with glittering swords. You nod, I think. Your fixed eyes begin to wink. Down on your bosom sinks your head. You do not hear me, Dad. So, has he died or fallen asleep? Died. Died? Everyone thinks died? It's not falling asleep at first, but now I think he died. Huh. Okay. Anyone want to make the counter-argument? <laughs> yeah. <coughs> um, so the child now becomes a storyteller, at any rate. Um, what you can, this seems to be a poem about the um, growing old and possibly dying of the old man, but without the speakers knowing it, it's a story about the child growing up, um, having to be a child, who now takes care of and is soon to be left by, or actually is left by, the old man who used to take care of him. Um, so that very subtle, um, surprisingly subtle, given, given the simplicity of the poem, surprisingly subtle um, depiction of the aging of both of them, when you think it's only the aging of one of them. Um, again, that's, that's where we are in the 1790s, as Romanticism is about to come. You'll also see where we are in Blake um, for Tuesday. So I think Blake and Burns are what we're supposed to read. Is that right? Um, so again, they're in this book. Um, I, there's no Blake, if I recall correctly, in the um, price. Um, but there is Blake in um, the Lonsdale. There's also Burns in the Lonsdale. Uh, so... Read that over Thanksgiving um, and have a really good Thanksgiving. And people do tend to fall asleep after Thanksgiving meals. So maybe you'll rethink this poem um, after you see what the older people do at the Thanksgiving meals. All right. Have a good break. Thanksgiving. Good one as well.